Welcome to With Bowl and Spoon. I'm here with my friend Darla Cravada. You want to introduce yourself? Mm-hmm. I am Darla Cravada. I live on Friendship <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> We're sitting here in my kitchen and we are having uh, like a caprese with some... Which is bread with basil, tomato, and, and cheese. cheese. Mm-hmm. And some olive oil. and Yeah, uh, tomatoes from the garden. Figs, nectarine from the mm, farmer's mm-hmm. market, and some uh, delicious Indian apps from People's Indian, which is up the street. I've lived here since 1997, but I've been going to People's Indian restaurant since Tom Murphy opened it in 1995. He was there. Oh, they wow. still have a picture of him. Oh, and I worked cute. for Mayor Murphy. And so I that's my, that's my Indian go-to. Oh, that's cool. No matter where, yeah. Cool. Always People's. Brett and I used to live on in a third floor apartment just around the corner from here until 1999, from like 1994 to 1999. I'm sure we met each other over at People's. At you lived in Jane and Arnie's house. We did, yeah, right there. I mean, I can see where you live from here. <laughs> I yeah. know, where, I just talked to Jane today. It's a trip, yeah. Yeah, I can't believe it. So food is, it's actually been a really important part of my life. Um, I love to feed people. I don't think I like hospitality as much because... That's mm. exhausting for me. Mm-hmm. I'm a functional introvert, but I like to feed people. And I think that's always been part of my life. That's how I grew up. I grew up going to eat at my grandmother's, every other grandmother, every other week, every other Sunday, no matter what we had. So every Sunday you were at a grandmother's house. Yeah, two actually. One I would eat at, one I would say hello to. And it was really nice because I was with uh, groups of people and my family and we ate and we always ate. <laughs> we ate and my one grandmother's, we always had spaghetti and meatballs. Um, my other grandmother was more interesting. She would have capon or raviolis or um, sometimes my favorite thing that she would make would be dessert. If we came over there, it would be peach delight. Did she have a peach tree? Um, they did have a peach tree in nice. the back. And so, and, and that kind of brings me to my grandfather. So when I plant in, you can see the garden in the back. It's not big because the yard's small, but I plant a fair amount. I always plant marigolds for my grandmother. And um, every time I pick the first tomato, I think about my grandfather. Amelia, because that's what I did until I turned 18 and I moved, is he would call me when the first tomato was ripe (laughs) and I would go pick it. He lived in Lincoln Place. So, yeah. So that was your thing. You got to pick the first tomato. I got to pick the first tomato. inaugural tomato tomato every year. Yeah. And that's I was, really cool. Yeah, I was the oldest, and mm-hmm. I still got to do it all the time. Both of your parents were of Italian descent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my dad and my mother. I will say that we did the genealogical research. Now, Italians are hard to find, but my one grandmother, my <clears throat> dad's mom, Adrian Lau, was from Ohio, of Quaker descent. And we just discovered my great-grandmother to the 10th was like, jailed in Salem because she was a Quaker. Mm. She was accused of witchery. And her name, appropriately, was Sarah. I'm the descendant of a bunch of Italians and a Quaker witch. Yeah. Which I kind of like. Yeah. It's nice. It's not, you know, it's not bad. It's my grandmother married into an Italian family. My grandfather, Bravada, was very Italian. He had nine brothers and sisters. They were all around and then scattered. There was a, you know, this is, this is what you, we did, right? We ate. And I think, you know, that's always one of the reasons why you're sitting in a kitchen with a table because we ate in the kitchen. 
and the dining room has a table. And for whatever reason, I'm always pushed to have those two things where I live. I want to have a table in the kitchen so I can eat in the kitchen and look at the stuff and hang out, drink wine, and then a dining room so I can feed people. And my table in the dining room shelf opens up to 210 inches. So it opens the entire length of the two rooms in that there. I think I've seen that. You have seen it. Yes. Yeah, it opens to 210 inches. So it has six leaves so I can fit enough people around the table. So, yeah. How many people fit? So one of the traditions that I have celebrated for many years, and we have forever, as long as I've been alive, is the Feast of the Seven Fishes. We've had like 35 people around the table. Wow. And we cook it here, right? But it's probably the table's comfortable for about 25 people max. <laughs> but you can push and a bunch of people in there. Yeah, the table or whatever. Yeah, we, we tried at one point, but it's a big enough table for a lot of people. And we serve seven plus courses of fish. So. And <laughs> That's we, a lot. Yeah, we start always with my friend Sharon makes a gumbo now. And we'll start with a gumbo. We do fettuccine and clam. We do a cod, always in a different way. We do shrimps, because uh, everybody loves shrimp, and that's easy to eat, and that's easy to make. We have done salmon in the past, but salmon's not really a white fish, right? So it's not... So it's not just fishes, it's white fishes. It's white mm-hmm. fishes that we're eating. Tuna. We have tuna and a pasta. Last year, I made a lemon cod, mm. cold, and I flaked it. It was delicious, actually. What the hell's the name of the damn thing that we ended up? Schmelz! Schmelz. For luck! <laughs> Schmelz for luck. So, yeah, so seven fishes is always a really nice thing. And it, it kind of goes back to this idea of I love to cook for people, mm-hmm. but I don't need to be part. I mean, I eat, but I'm, I like to be busy. You know, you'll catch me having a toast with a glass of wine and sitting down and eating very quickly, but most of the time I spend in the kitchen. Moving back and forth, bringing Moving out and dishes. Feeding people. Hosting, and, but, and I, but I don't scale. really host. <clears throat> I mean, that's the no. part, like... For me, part of it isn't the presence is the food. Okay. Right? It's what I'm making. So you kind of hide behind the food and you're hosting. You're like the food host. I'm just here to move it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you can see even purposefully, right? I mean, it's on a platter that's a sunflower with the, everything's mimicking the sunflower, including the middle, which is figs, you know, so it's very purposeful and it's very deliberate and it's very much for you, right? It's very much for you. Yeah. And that's how I feel about food and I love to eat. So yeah, sure. It originates in my family, but it also originates for me right now still too. And it resonates, right? Even though I love to go out to dinner, um, I love to go out and eat, but I also like to have people over for food. We just had, it was celebrity bocce night for the Italian, Italian days, little early days. Mm. And so I had a cocktail party nice. and food, right? I mean, and a couple of cocktails before we walked down. And since I have a bounty full of tomatoes, I'm about making sure that everybody eats them. So, <laughs> yeah, and there's still more out on the vine. Yeah. So for for me, food has been, you know, part of what I do, but and what I like to do, and what I like to do with people is eat food. But the other <laughs> thing too is that it's, you know, in the last, I don't know, so many years, it's translated into my work, in different ways, right? More structured and and 
failures, but it's translated into my work. Darla and I met at one of the Food Policy Council meetings. They were talking about the food action plan that they were starting to work on, and they were trying to get an idea. They were inventorying everybody's skills and strengths, and they had all us supporting organizations, mm -hmm. the stakeholders. So we're sitting around, we're standing around in this big circle and they're asking questions like, are you good at grant writing? If you're good at grant writing, take one step forward. If you're not, just stay where you are. So it's like grant writing, um, something else, something else. And then conflict resolution. And I, being the smart ass I am, took a step back. And when I look to my left, there's Darla, <laughs> who has also taken a step back. And also Ken Regal, who took a step back, and we're all just like, whoa. <laughs> we're not afraid of conflict. <laughs> we're not resolving it, though. We're yeah. not. That's not our strong suit. And we knew it. We're, we acknowledged it right out loud in front of all those people. And I thought that was really great. And so then I was like, okay, I got to be friends with this lady. That was a, honestly, it was just too much process for me and not enough tangible understanding and discussion. You know, I have a lot of patience and commitment to engagement but i also believe that there has to be an outcome and you know i i work and and we all work and we all had jobs and spending you know the first 30 minutes trying to you know, I, I couldn't quite ever figure it out find out what everybody's favorite sandwich was yeah it was way too much i would have much rather spent 10 minutes before each meeting getting to know everybody by just talking to them instead of spending you know, 40 minutes doing that. And, and I eventually, which is sad, I eventually just opted out because I couldn't quite ever figure out where it was going. And that felt sad to me, especially when they did surveys. It just felt so internal and not external. It was very much about, well, it, it was done by the organization, so they didn't have an outside consultant, right? And that became clear because we had much more tunnel vision yeah and not kind of a, an ability to break out of that silo they were trying to figure out their relevance and just talking to each other wasn't going to help that and so they they did do that state of the county report or state mm -hmm. of the region report which i don't know all of it was not very effective in my opinion as a food planner and food systems professional but uh, regardless, um, they have new leadership now, and I'm I'm really hopeful. I am. I mean, you know how hopeful I am. I think there's there's a need for the Food Policy Council. I think it's a great, oh for sure. I think it's a great organization. I just don't know if the process that they painstakingly went through was one that generated the interest that needed to happen around food issues across the county outside of their own circle of interest because that's what we do that's what i do is it, it's outside of my own circle. you've got to be outside of your own circle of interest and if you're just talking to the same people mm -hmm. and there's the same people that believe you then you're not creating and generating a level yeah. of interest so limited input from municipalities because they didn't understand the correct questions to ask but at the same time let's go back right so the positive was is that there was a recognition it was greater than the city which is part of where i start to get a little like more on my soapbox which is food issues are greater than the urban core and we treat it as if we can't go further than this the 55 square miles and that has been something i've i've watched over the last i don't know 14 years the county has no land use mm -hmm. authority. But the city does. The city does. Bit, yeah. So do the other 129 municipalities. But engaging them 
is is an effort, right? That's that was the goal of the Food Policy Council. But the county did a couple of things. One of the things that it did is it started a program called Allegheny Grows, and it partnered with Grow Pittsburgh to be able to fund community gardens and municipalities, right? So you can go to Duquesne or Tarentum or Sharpsburg or Braddock. Etna, Braddock. We own the property in Braddock. Mm-hmm. Um, and a variety of other communities and look at the community gardens that were funded, invested in, structures were built, uh, tools were purchased, technical assistance was given, and they're successful. Mm -hmm. They really are successful. The other thing we tried to do, which is I will say that we should continue to try to do this, because I tried it twice and failed twice, is to farm at Round Hill Farm. So Allegheny County owns a working farm. We have cows and we have chickens and we have pigs and we have we have peacocks. We have horses. We have the retired horses. It's such a cool park. And who manages all the animals? Allegheny County has employees that take mm. care of the animals. Mm-hmm. It is, I can't remember how big it is. Like, let's just say conservatively, it's a, a thousand acres of land. It was a working farm that we bought, turned it into a park. It has a spray park in it. But ducks, geese, etc., and it's gone through these iterations. For a long time, it had a demonstration garden that one of the employees had, where you could actually see cotton growing, and tons of school kids go there because you can go see the pigs and the chickens and the cows and everybody else, the peacocks, everything. So we have all that, and uh, we grow all of the food for the buffaloes and the police oh, wow. horses. And the cows and the chickens and the pigs and everybody else so gets a real operating farm. It operates nice. as a farm. It even has a farmhouse. It's very cool. And a visitor center. So I tried once, not twice. I tried twice to farm there. Um, because I thought if we could create a seed farm similar to the one they had in Lancaster, where we could get plots of land dedicated for people to learn how to grow food, engage them around the business planning of farming. We could be part of that whole opportunity to have farms that are aging out, farmers that are aging out, partner with people that are interested in this work, right? Not once, but twice. I try to need that. We need need that. farmers, yeah. It's 50 minutes away. So it's too far, right, Mm -hmm. for people. In their brains, it's too far. But we had, it's, it's too far for like a training program for kids to get out there to train and then come back. That's a long, are there buses? It's, it's a there? long, well, we tried to figure out how to shuttle. The community college has programs. There's Penn State's out that way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. there's a ton of opportunities. It's the interest and the perception that it needed to be closer to town. When you have, oh, so a, you already have a contention about everybody focusing on the urban right core because what's yeah. So how do you learn how to farm if you don't have the land that you can use to farm on? Well, when you do have a whole farm that's able to do it, I had received grant money twice, well, not once but twice, mm. to try it out. Both times mm. up in flames, but tried. Second time we planted about a half an acre, and everything because it's a county-owned park. Everything that you do actually has to be done for the public good so we gave it all to the food bank and we grew okra and we didn't have enough people to pick everything so we put out like an open call and we had people come from all over to pick food and they got to take it home cool yeah it was very cool but i wouldn't say it's a contention i would say that it is an attitude that 
can be pervasive around where you need to have farming and when you have land that's able to do it because most of the farmland is outside of the city of Pittsburgh and most of the green spaces that are farmland, if they're not being conserved, they're being sold for housing. But but they have the and right to that that's right. And they but they have the right to do that, right? And they yeah. have the right to do it. But if we looked more holistically at our region around space and farming, mm-hmm. I think we'd be more successful. But it almost feels like, and this is what it felt like with the Food Policy Council, is the city was the focus when there's a region that actually has the opportunity for significant amount of change. That's interesting because I didn't feel that the Food Policy Council had enough of a focus on the city. And let me let me explain. We're never going to grow enough food in the urban environment to feed everybody. That's not what urban agriculture is for. Urban agriculture is to develop the uh, culture of people wanting to grow, curious about growing, it's additional green space, and also people eating. The food, because mm-hmm. when a kid picks a carrot out of the ground, that's magical. And then the I've I've seen kids just sort of like wipe it on their on their pants or something and take a bite out of a carrot right out of the ground, which is so cool. That's how you develop the desire to want to then have larger farmland out in the mm-hmm. rural areas. And I think it's it's all connected. So that's that's why urban agriculture was such a, a focus for me, and why I thought like a model in the city can be on a smaller scale and it can be proven and then replicated around. I don't think other municipalities have a specific food person, and the city of Pittsburgh did, and so I was like, let's do a pilot here. No, the Uh other municipalities aren't large enough to do it, but they have volunteers to do it. If you think about things like SHIM, the South Hills Interfaith Ministry, they have plots of land that they farm, garden on, and it's a lot of immigrants. North Hills Community Outreach, same thing, big garden program, big garden plants. SHIM has a program where they're actually growing specialty herbs for cooking. Right? People are working in on these. It's all volunteers, right? It's like having your own plot at the Octopus Garden, which we used to have for years. You know, I'd wander up there and like have my little whatever it was, five by eight plot of land to be able to garden in. No, we don't. We, we create silos where we work in silos. Yeah. Um, and the, I always saw the Food Policy Council as being able to bring all that together, but I didn't quite see them turn that corner. You know, hopefully they'll... Yeah. They'll get there. But Allegheny Grows was a nice program. The, the attempt at farming at Round Hill was fun for me. But then I went back to it and tried to partner with Eden Hall mm. and the food bank because Alice, who's out there at Chatham, she wanted to grow her own wheat and chaff and make bread. And I was like, we can do that. Maybe we can do that. They ended up doing it up at Eden Hall because they have students mm-hmm. for the uh, food bank, which is really cool, which is really cool. So I'm I'm excited about that. The other part of the work that I've done is always around the conservation district, which is with the farm preservation program and conservation easements. And so I think mm-hmm. those are really important, again, regionally to be able to look at those, understand the point of them, which they are meant to preserve farmland and hopefully find people that are interested in doing that. You know, you got to want to do that. It's very clear after all this work that I've done research and talking to people. It's backbreaking work, no matter if you have a small garden in the backyard mm-hmm. or you have a, you know, a half an acre in the middle of Garfield, right? So growing food is not the easiest. I know, but it's, it's like the best, right? I love I love the tomatoes that come out of my garden. I love the kale that comes out of my garden. Well, you can grow stuff that is a little more delicate, like some of the types of tomatoes, 
But you can grow the things that wouldn't necessarily be transported well. You can grow the heirloom tomatoes that are more delicate. I mean, we could get them from local farms, but, like, you can't get those from California. No, no, you can't. I mean, there was a time that elected officials would pass out things like bingo daubers or I have one here. It's a read a coin yardstick. They passed out seed packets. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You showed me those. Mm-hmm. And seed packets were a way, because people grew their own food, right? So I talked about my grandfather. So my grandparents had a garden in the back of their house. That was their entire backyard. It was huge. It was in Lincoln Place. And just the entire backyard was a garden with uh, peach trees and pears and grapes. And they had their own little manufacturing thing going on. I mean, they would can everything. Do but we, is, Does your family still own that house in Lincoln no, Place? No, no, no. After my grandmother died, we got rid of it. Lincoln Place is very much like the suburbs. Yeah, very much like... Well, they moved... They lived in Hayes. And oh, wow. so they lived right behind Holy Angels Church until Pendop built the road to nowhere. And when they mm. built the road to nowhere, they took by eminent domain my grandparents house along with all of the people that lived in Hayes and most of them built houses up in Lincoln Place and so they just went basically up 885 there yeah and there used to be a a little grocery called Caruso's hardware store ice cream store and a bunch of different little things up there and that's where they all moved but anyway they had this they had this garden and they canned and I can see it in my head like when my grandmother died I can see all the I, I still have canning jars I mean, I still use them for everything, actually. When she died and we cleaned out her house, I took all the canning jars. <laughs> there were, I'm not kidding, there were probably like 700. And I packed them all up and I gave some to my brother who cans. I sent some to my sister, my other brother. I still have a, a box of them downstairs. So part of this whole thing that we're talking about, Shell, it's like the stream of food in my family. And then how yeah. it manifests itself is almost everywhere. Like I always say, air, water, food. You can't live right. without those three things. And yeah. so it is pivotal, but also it's more than just nourishment. It's about community. It's mm-hmm. about family. It's about a certain type of mutual enjoyment. That's it's real, right? It so, really is, yeah. so I just, I mean, you just saw my grandmother's canning jars and with yeah. the original like word spread on it that's like spelled wrong. And I still use that to house my food. There's my beans are in them. My, my cheeses are in them. They continue to be integral part of my food system. So, you know, I've, I feel pretty lucky uh, and fortunate that I've been able to, to live like, like that, right? Live with a family that looked at food as a way to bring people together and a way to make sure everybody was fed properly. And it was always simple foods. It was never really, you know, high end. I mean, I grew up in a family that was pretty middle class or working class, actually. You know, you just, you ate with your family, you hung out with your family. I can't make peach delight like my grandmother does. I tried, but it doesn't taste the same. It's my grandmother. And, uh, yep. but I make a, I make a sauce better than my grandmother's and my whoa, meatballs are whoa, better. Yeah. Whoa, look and out for haunting. My, no, not, not even haunted. I mean, my is brother. Is she proud of that? She is. My brother will say that to my mother and while we're all eating because I have worked so hard to perfect my sauce and my meatballs so that they are just like my grandmother's, but they're just a touch better. Yeah, yeah, they're good. Yeah, they're good. There's um, just that little little extra Moorishness to it. Little extra deliciousness, yeah. yeah, to it. So So did you cook with your grandparents? 
I did. I cooked with my grandmother. I cooked with my mom. I cooked with my dad. Oh, wait, did your grandpa have, or your dad, have a man's kitchen in the basement? My grandparents did. Because that's a thing, apparently, at least here in Pittsburgh, for guys to have a kitchen in the basement. Well, my grandparents did. My grandmother okay. cooked in the basement. Both of my grandmothers cooked in the basement. They had full kitchens in the basement. Yep. Both of my grandparents were in charge. My one grandmother lived in Lincoln Place and they had a full kitchen, the whole shebang. And my other grandmother lived in Swissome Park and they had a full kitchen, but they also had a bar. So they had a little bit different, but it wasn't just the man's kitchen. You know, it's where they canned, it's where they yeah. made sausage. It's where they did yeah. their stuff. I've been lucky to, to get to know you because um, you've spoke a lot about food and especially when we were really bonding over our mutual food policy council experiences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> food, when you and I are talking about food, I'm talking about the feeling of food. But mm -hmm. when I'm talking to you about Allegheny Groves or the project in Round Hill or the things that I think about when I think about farmland conservation, it's not a feeling, it's a fact. It's, a, it's part of what we could be doing, mm. what we should strive for, what we should work towards is being able to do all of that, conserve farmland, you know, connect people to farmland, do help business planning. find the farmers who are going to manage the farmland. Right. So, they have to find, so there's an outlet for it. And then we have to find the customers who are going to be attracted to those products that we're now growing locally. Right. Like how, how does that all fit together? And you got to think about all those things at the same time. Sorry. That's why you do business. <laughs> I mean, that's why you do yeah. business planning. I first started doing this work a long time ago. There was a farmer. His name was Pete. I'm not going to say his last name. His name was Pete. He owned a farm out in Oakdale. And he was the last of his family. He didn't have any kids. And so, so he signed a lease with a fracking company because the land lease gave him money to be able to yeah. invest back in. He produced enough for Aramark, right? Wow. He was one of the many small suppliers, right? Pete's wife made the most amazing lavender bread. And people would boycott because he had to make a decision financially yeah. about what he could do, right? Meanwhile, the only remaining dairy farm, which is no longer a dairy farm anymore, I will add, that was in Oakdale owned by John Scott's entire farm was developed with strip mining. And he built, his family, his great-grandfather built a, um, a barn that has 48 glass windows in it because they made so much money from strip mining that they reinvested it back in. And I think that that's the other thing that we see, right? We see... Was it, it wasn't still a farm. They just took off all the soil. They strip-mined it. it. Oh, yeah. They strip-mined it. They it's, did not, coal. it's not the same as undermining. No, they stripped it's it. stripping. They stripped the top it. Of it. So it can't be a farm anymore. Well, they had a dairy farm. They had cows. They were one of the last remaining dairy farms. So you could farms. still have cows on you a strip-mining site. Well, because it was replanted, right? Ah, okay, gotcha. Because it was his okay, great-grandfather, yeah. right? But that's the way they kept the land. Mm -hmm. is by coal, right? How did Pete keep the land? He signed a lease. I watched multiple farmers make decisions about signing land leases because you can still do a conservation easement or a farmland preservation easement with a gas, producing gas well, right, on it. You can still do tough it. Tough decisions. It's tough choices to still maintain because there's no... What's the margin of yeah. money when you're farming? Yeah. Nothing, right? So so if we start to think about Very food low. and food systems, costs, availability, 
uh, fresh food, how do you grow your own food. There are so many complex choices and decisions that people are faced with, right? And um, you don't know them until you start talking to them. Yep. And you start figuring out. I would have never known all, any of this had had not had the opportunity to talk to a lot of these people. Yeah, you can make a lot of snap judgments and a lot of moral judgments on people for decisions they make, but you need to have the conversation. Yeah. And figure out all the details before you do that. Yeah, it's. I mean, re- and it's it's so often that people think they're doing the right thing. Like when do you remember when the city when DPW decided to. Uh, not use pesticides or herbicides in our parks anymore blanket statement we're not gonna we're just gonna take them all off right sounds like a great thing woohoo let's celebrate tree pittsburgh's like hey you can't do that we need some pesticides because these pests are going to kill all these trees and then we're going to have a bigger problem right what about this and what about this and what about this and what about this so it was like you think you're doing the right thing and then you're like oh wait okay we gotta we gotta think and that's how you're you're talking about like inside your box you don't know what you're missing right so you have to go outside and really be very uh thoughtful and that's why it takes so long to get anything done if you're trying to do the right thing if you're if you're really intentionally trying to develop something within government is you take the time to actually structure it so that it will last so it will be institutional last so that's interesting so the city did that the county never made a blanket statement about that integrated pest management had been a practice that was demonstrated to be safe and effective and um, you had to be trained on it and you had to know how to do it and you had to do all that and the county never the county never moved other than understanding integrated pest management we did a lot of work with Penn State and so that's where a lot of our parks management came from right Mm -hmm. it was really kind of informed from that Penn State model to me, it's really, uh, it's been really eye-opening, honestly, to be able to look at food systems from a countywide perspective. Like, being able to see the different issues that pop up. And, and we talk about food deserts, and we talk about food accessibility, and, you know, we, we might talk about one community, but we forget about a whole other community like Lincoln or Liberty Borough that has no access and you're riding, you're going pretty far in a car. It's really interesting for me to see it. It's really fascinating for me to watch it and, and to be able to think about it, about how do you, how do you change that? I actually think we should go back to where elected officials passed out seed packets. <laughs> I do. I do. That encouraged people to actually plant whatever they had. Well, it's, you know, not everybody has the land, not everybody has right. the skill. There's deer, there's rabbits, there's mm-hmm. groundhogs, there's... There's you know, always a reason why. mildew. Well, there's there's a lot of barriers to that sort of thing. And plus, you know, time is also a barrier that we have to be conscious of. Well, so part of it is is actually understanding why those barriers didn't exist for a very long time. You know, forget the disease, right? But why before did more people traditionally plant than, than now? What changed, you said it from the beginning, what changed in our culture? That modern living. All of a sudden it becomes a barrier to actually plant. Uh, Etna Borough distributed big planters and seeds, a couple of plants. You could pick them up 
and do it for free. There's ways to do it. And so I don't see barriers as much as I see the, uh, when you say modern life, if you're able to pick up it, it's easier than actually wait, you know, growing it, right? So is it faster for me to go down to the farmer's market and buy tomatoes? Sure. Do I like to grow tomatoes? I do. Why do I do it? Well, because the whole transition went from farms to people living in the urban environment. And so we didn't have grocery stores. So the farmers would come in. People would still grow in their backyard. Mm-hmm. They'd grow their vegetables. They'd have chickens. But to get their meat, they'd wait to go to the farmer's market. So at farmer's markets, butchers were king. Mm-hmm. And then because, you know, nobody wanted to look at the you know the the meat anywhere so they they packaged it real pretty and not messy and and sold it to you know the housewife and the pristine outfit who would go in there and take her white gloves and pick up a thing of meat and be like oh look it's not messy at all and, and then take it home and cook it up so it just it became really a more of a sterile environment more of a you don't have to deal with that messy stuff like you're in the urban area now and you don't have to do farm stuff well you know it's it's funny that you would say it i would actually say that it's not about the pristine person with the white gloves it became a matter of understanding convenience and public health got involved in a lot of ways around how you dealt with food and when you started looking at it from a public health perspective then all of a sudden you did make different requirements than you did before when you could just show up and get the meat it became far more regulated than anything else and so the idea of then all of a sudden seeing production happen at a greater level in a different way all born out of food illness and public health management and so I mean, I appreciate kind of the sarcastic, pristine lady with the white gloves, but you know that was my grandmother. She didn't wear white gloves. Oh, oh no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not. It wasn't even sarcastic. It was uh, actually based in in fact. It was part of my food studies thesis. Um, I don't know if I could generalize like that, especially with the public well, health is, component. This is what happened was when things started to be mass produced. That's where the public health thing came in because you'd have you know you still had local butchers with the local stores, and so if there was a health concern, it was very small and focused. It wasn't until we started mass producing things where there were mm-hmm. these mass outbreaks. Right. Like, I'm, I'm talking like four or five stores. Like, still, that's, that's a lot. They still do it now. But it's because of those mass incidences, and I'm betting the smaller farms have not had that listeria problem or those other problems. This is the problem with government. You can only regulate one way. I was at this meeting this afternoon, and, you know, zoning for small projects, zoning for large projects. Same process. Mm-hmm. The small projects aren't going to be as problematic as the large project would be if it went awry, but nobody's actually talking to the small. So it's very hard to regulate to different size and different scale. You have to keep everything equal for everybody. I don't know the law well enough to know. Maybe you do, but I do know that different producers at the farmer's market are looked at differently. So there is, there's some level of regulation on people that are producing like just greens and tomatoes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If, if there's more risk you know, to but, someone's health, like the meat, the dairy. But that's I don't see that as a bad seafood. thing. Seafood. No, no, no. They, they have to regulate really, differently than, yeah. you know, greens and vegetables and whatever. I see it as a... Prepared I, food is more regulated than, you know, raw vegetables. Right. Because the outbreaks of problems that happened when there was no regulation was, that's how people died. Yeah. So, um, well, I don't disagree with the whole idea of mass production. I think that regulatory oversight around food systems is probably a smart idea. 
Because oh, not everybody knows how to do absolutely. it. Absolutely. Food yeah. safe handling practices or safe food handling practices has saved billions yeah, of lives. Of no doubt. No doubt. I'm not yeah. I, I hope you didn't think I was No 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 but I'm just that point because that's not no. We need regulation. The small producers are getting overwhelmed with the paperwork. So figuring out how to make that easier for them. Because, you know, when you have a large operation, you've got different people who do the running the tractor, the irrigation, the this, the that, the paperwork, right? When you have a small farm, there's a farmer doing all of that and managing his staff as well. That's why. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> but it's, I mean, so that's... why would anybody do that on purpose? Why would anyone choose that as their life's work on purpose? Let's go back to the idea of why people do what they do. Because they love it. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's Absolutely. why they Absolutely, and that's all of our farmers come from right. their hearts, and they pour it in. And that's why they do it. You know, again, it goes kind of goes back to understanding that we are all tasked with some kind of invasive process that we have to follow to be able to produce whatever we're producing. What we choose to do is that that's part of the information, right? So we choose to do, you know, I choose to do what I do. You choose to do what you do. That farmer chooses to do and then knows what's going to happen at the same time. You know, I think about it. I've worked with a lot of people that have gotten permits from the health department to open up things. Jen Yerlich at Farmer Baker several years ago was opening up a, she was making food in a, one of those um, shipping containers. You know, you have to meet plumbing and health safety and food safety and you have to be with, in so many feet of a, you know, and we worked around that because there is flexibility that exists there, Right. But what it takes is that person that's getting ready to go into that work to understand that there's a part of it that you're going to have to, like, this is what you have to do, right? And so I'm thinking about her. I'm thinking the people that opened up the kitchen in Sharpsburg. I worked with them on their permit. You know, there's been a lot of... La Dorita? Yeah, La Dorita. I mean, so, so a lot of kind of interesting permitting things like that that look at food and food production mm-hmm. and where it is. Jen Yurlich's really... St- struck out on me because it was so different. It really was so different. Food production places like La Dorita, there's a set of regulations mm-hmm. that you follow. But Jen's was different and she managed to work around it. Like where the slop sink was. I mean, stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? And you don't even think about that. And you don't even think, and, and oh, yeah, that's where so you learn, details. like you're like, well, why? Yep. <laughs> why do you need it that close? What does it make a difference? I mean, you can still you can walk to it, right? It's kind of interesting, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think food is food is very personal, but not everybody thinks the same about it. You know, not everybody thinks the same about food. No, I am completely aware. <laughs> that's why um, I totally appreciate that. Yeah, nobody does. <clears throat> I mean, that's why we have fast food. That's why we have so much processed food. You know, because it's easier, it's faster. You know, you don't have to worry about the pottery mildew. You know, oh, the struggles. But you still look at the one bowl, two bowls, yeah, plate, no, you know, all ton. these tomatoes everywhere. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so it's you could probably pick another basket full and, right and, now. You know, I'm lucky because I feel really lucky and I, it's not very big out there. So. Yeah, we're getting a lot of the cherry tomatoes and the kids aren't really eating them like they did last year. And we planted more because <laughs> they were eating, Cause they were eating them last year. And so, yeah, we'll probably end up doing a lot of sun-dried tomatoes or something. Which do you dry them outside or do you do something? We do haven't done it yet. No. We did it once in the toaster, but we ended up just baking them because they were too thick. We didn't squish the juice out of them, which now we know. But we let them sit 
and sit and we're like these are going to start to mold so we put them in the toaster oven and just turn them on and they dried up but real low but yeah and they dried up you can though don't uh-huh. you yeah i can like 60 quarts last year so I don't of tomatoes think, yeah i don't think i'll do any this year but it's the weather's been great for it. usually it's like hot, hot do you hot. buy your tomatoes and then can or do you just yeah. grow them you buy yeah. them and can usually i do who cooks for you i got my tomatoes from them last year um, I've gotten them from Tiny Seed. Mm-hmm. Todd at Tiny Seed. Yeah, I love those. Yeah, that would be, I mean, so do you can in your kitchen at home? Generally, yeah. I've never canned. I canned with my grandmother. I never wanted to can, but on your way out, I'll show you her canning mm-hmm. pot because I still have it. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, it's right up in the pantry. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a giant. I took it. I took the canning pot. I gave the tomato strainer to my brother um, because he wanted it, but I kept the pot. And it's it's like this. Oh my god! It's fat. It's how do you even have a burner that big? Well, my grandmother used to put it on two burners, and I actually have her hot plate too that I kept. So yeah, but I've I've never really canned, and we have in the basement like any good Pittsburgher does. We have what used to be a cold storage, you know, where they put the wine and the canned goods. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's all I have to say about food. Well, this was really fun. A Darla. lot of food, actually. Thank you so much, Darla, for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you for asking. No problem. I hope you learn more about Allegheny County and, of course, my uh, <laughs> commitment to uh, conservation easements as it relates to farmland. I wish yeah. we could figure out ways in which we could get people. I-, I would love to see Round Hill become a tiny seed farm where people could learn really about farming down there. I know you're you're looking for your next adventure when (laughs) when the county executive retires. Um, So would you maybe go and be a farmer? I don't know if I would be a farmer. Several years ago, I was looking at some other things food-related, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. Right? (laughs) It's a lot of work. And, and, you know, I think to myself, that's a lot of work. Um, (laughs) And that's why you have farmers that are aging out. Yeah, you know? and that's why the kids don't want to do it because they see how hard it's their hard work. family works, and they realize how many other options they have at this point. So right. trying to make that appealing, and then you know, working to create the appreciation for our farmers is a well. Think about where big, we started, job. right? Think about where we started, which is essentially it's the culture of growing your own food. It's not necessarily the food part of that. Is I grow tomatoes every year and plant marigolds with them. Because my grandfather did it with me, right? My son grows tomatoes and plants a marigold because I did it with him. Mm -hmm. And he's in D.C., right? That's what, you know, so you make it part of what it means to be part of what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. This is part of what we do, sorry. This is what we do. We touch the dirt. We don't put the gloves on. We make sure it's deep enough. We take care of it, you know, that's what we do. And then we, we enjoy our tomatoes. And so what he'll do, and I'll finish with this, what he'll do is he'll make tomato salad, which is how my grandmother made it, which is how I made it, which is how probably you make it, which is tomatoes, basil, garlic, and olive oil, a little bit of salt. You mix it and let it sit in there for a little bit, and that's your salad. You Delicious. Know? And that's what you eat, yeah. Yep. That's what you eat. So. That's the best. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. And Have another Caprese Thank you. Slice. I will. Have a great summer. Thanks, Dada. You're welcome, Shell. Everyone knows that food is food. No secret. Eat that food with a bowl and spoon.
Spoon is written, produced, and hosted by me, Shelley Danko Day. Copy editing by Carolyn Ristow. Details review. Original theme song was written and performed by Paul Labrise and Friends. You can listen to With Bowl and Spoon anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us and send us questions or messages on Facebook and Instagram or on our website, withbowlandspoon.com. Thanks for listening. Bowl.